We are in Mark chapter 7 for today's Just Jesus story. And it's a troubling chapter. Mark 7 paints a picture of Jesus, as a lot of Mark does, that is complicated and somewhat troubling. And if you don't get the context and you don't get the flow of the story, you find yourself trying to explain away Jesus. And we don't want to do that. Mark 7 is going to give you problems if you have a cartoon Jesus. Cartoon Jesuses don't fit in 30-minute boxes. Cartoon Jesuses are always peaceful. Always the shepherd holding the lamb. Or always uh, picking on people and the rebel and the anti-political Jesus. Or the progressive Jesus. Or the prince of peace. Or the name into which we march to war. People grab parts of Jesus and they make him into a cartoon. A two-dimensional being that has no real power over our lives. We have trouble seeing Jesus as a person. Because we believe that Jesus was also the Son of God. When it comes to believing in Jesus' deity, it would be very, very hard to find anybody who believes in that more than I do. I am very much a Trinitarian in that sense, in that I believe that Jesus is co-equal with God, co-eternal with God, of the same essence of God. Uh, All of those great creedal statements, I can say very enthusiastically. And yet... I also have to insist that he was 100% human. And I'm aware that that's a paradox. But if you're not comfortable with mystery and paradox, you're going to have a very miserable life because even our universe is full of misery and paradox. Mystery, rather, and paradox. Uh, Our universe is full of things such as quantum physics, which works, and classical physics, which work, and they disagree with each other. As Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum physics, said, uh, sometimes the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. Jesus was all, all God, but he was also all human. And as he's a human, he's got all of the hormones and all of the connections you've got. And he is struggling at times in Mark. And in Mark, you'll see him get frustrated, angry, surprised, um, infuriated. You'll see these terms used in Mark more than you will see them used in any of the other Gospels. In Mark 7... Here's a setup. The Pharisees come, and as the Pharisees are wont to do, they have found something that they're criticizing Jesus about. It is something which you and I aren't quite ready for. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Well, the next two verses just give background that the Jews, the Pharisees and all the Jews, as Mark put it, whenever they come from the market, they do not eat unless they wash their hands, a ceremonial washing of hands, but they also wash the the cups, the kettles, the cooking utensils, the pitchers. And so in verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Well, let's stop for a moment. Jesus had nothing against cleanliness and even a casual reading of the book of Leviticus, if there's any way possible 
one can do a casual reading of the book of Leviticus, will show that God has a great interest in cleanliness. The old expression, cleanliness is next to godliness, is rubbish. It's a complete made-up thing. But God wants his people in the Old Testament to wash. He wants this to be clean. He wants, but he never tells them about a germ theory, never tells them about viruses or toxins or heavy metals or any of that other. He just says, wash. A lot of the Old Testament law was given with zero backing as to why. But God would just say, I'm clean and righteous. I am holy. Do this. Well, looking back at it from 2,000 years ahead, we can see that these laws actually helped the Jews survive when so many tribes around did not. You had the Jebusites, you had the, the Phoenicians, you had the Philistines, you had all of these groups that were mighty and they disappeared. The Jews remained. They remained I believe because of God's favor upon them, but also because of some of these laws, as Moses said, that God said to him, if you do these things, you will have, quote, none of these diseases. And so this was important to them. This was an outward thing, yes, but it was a way of showing that you were people of faith. Think about it this way. We go to restaurants and we'll sit down and we will, if it's if we're able, if it's not a noisy place, we'll say a prayer for our food. Now, why do we do that? The quick answer is, we do it because we're grateful. Yes, we are grateful. Uh, I, I believe that that goes without saying most of the time. We are grateful. We also do it, I think, out of a sense of tradition, that this is what God wants. And if we're being very honest, we trace it back to a story where the people of Israel were just complaining and complaining and complaining. Uh, they didn't have the food they wanted, so God provided the food they wanted, and they fell upon it and started eating it without thanking God. And the scripture says they died with the meat in their teeth because they didn't thank God. That's the only time he's ever done that. He did it for one specific purpose in one specific context to kind of wake people up. And yet, thousands of years later, you'll still see people hesitate because they've got the hot food and it's in front of them, but the other people's food hasn't arrived. What do they do? Well, here at our safe harbor, if you come to visit us at the sound stage, you will find one of the things we'll do is invite you to lunch. And we go to a local restaurant, and there can be anywhere from 12 to 30 of us that are able to go that, that time. And it's a great time to visit. But like most restaurants, it's a bit noisy. And we've developed, because one of our dear members here who also runs a shuttle for us, bringing people to the soundstage, uh, I forget exactly what he calls it. I think he calls it the Our Safe Harbor Prayer, where we just say, everybody who's grateful, say amen. Or everybody who likes Jesus, say amen. We dispense with it. We're not dispensing with it because we don't like Jesus. And yet, some people get very uncomfortable if we don't have that moment and I understand the piety. I understand the reverence for Christ. But Jesus hears this from the Pharisees about the washing with hands. And he reacts in a way we would not have expected. It is not so much defensive as it is, well, you guys don't do this. Watch what he does. Jesus replied, 
Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied about you. Hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Now here's where we get into a little bit of trouble. Uh, or we should be troubled if we know our Old Testament. Because a lot of these washing rules were not mere human rules. They were given in Leviticus in particular. Uh, you also find them in Deuteronomy. The, these, were, these were ways of keeping the community healthy and together. So what is Jesus going on about here? Jesus is not opposed to washing of hands. He is not opposed to the washing of utensils. In fact... In another instance, which we will look at in another Just Jesus story, he will go after these people by saying, you tithe, or make sure you give 10% of even little seeds. And then you ignore the widows and the orphans in their distress. And then he goes further and says, you should still do this, the tithing, but take care of the greater. Now he doesn't say that out loud here, but that's where he's going. First of all, he calls them hypocrites. In our society, we, we know what that word means. You need to know that in Jesus' term uh, time, it had a very, very specific meaning. It was the word for an actor on a stage. Now, the actors would, use, would be different roles. One actor could play four or five roles and, uh, and then be in the chorus. A chorus was a group that would stand there and sing or say background information. And as they come on, they would do the mask. You know, and here's the mask for this particular God, or here's the mask for this happy person, here's the mask with their sad person. And that wearing of the mask was a hypocrite. So it just meant an actor wearing a mask. He looks at him and says, that's all you're doing. You're putting on an outward show of piety. And yet that means a lot to you. Without you realizing you're just playing a role because that's not who you are. You're not pious people. You're not reverent people. You're not God's people. Even though you think you are because you got the outside nailed and you're enforcing it gathering around Jesus to say, well, you need to step up. You need to be more holy. You need to be more, we would say, more Christian. I find a lot of people trying to out-Christian Jesus. Don't. And he's saying, that that's, that's who you say you are, but let me ask you. Verse 9. He continued. Well, verse 8. You have let go of commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who's, who who's, will go, curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that means devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like this. Well, all right. We got we to gotta look at background. The Pharisees by this time, and some of the others, by the way, the Pharisees were just the leading conservative group. Uh, the Sadducees were the leading liberal group. The Essenes were um, really a leading extreme group. 
uh, when it came to purity. So there were different groups. But among the Jews that did not formally identify as any one of these, they got shuttled around between them, and many of them had picked this up as well. And that is, what you make belongs to God. All right, we get that. We say that often whenever we do a giving devotion. And you guys are, are, are amazing in giving, and thank you. It blows our minds, and it is feeding and caring for so many. Thank you. Well, the Pharisees were saying, this money needs to go into the treasury, because it is the treasury well, that will then support mom and dad in their dotage, in their later years when they cannot work and contribute. It is that, that's where we do our welfare system. Now, we don't really have any parallel to this because to us, religion and politics and culture are, are these three different streams. That was such a foreign concept, and it still is, by the way. If you're in a Muslim country and you're trying to say, well, this is religion, but this is politics, it has, there's no way they can understand this because everything is under Allah. Uh, and everything you do is, you know, haram, it's, it's forbidden, or it is blessed. Well, the Jews were very much this way. And so, we, um, we walk by somebody who's on the street, where I did this, I, I was raised to do this, and think, well, you don't need, you know, you're looking for a handout. Well, we pay taxes to take care of that. It's the way I was trained to, to respond. And I'm ashamed of that now, but at the same time, I got to say, that's all I knew. I hadn't been told anything different. I didn't realize that I was supposed to be the giver, and I wasn't supposed to shunt that off to government and put my nose in the air and march on. So we've changed. I hope we all have changed. And I hope we all keep changing. But the point is this. They would walk and say, you know, mom and dad are, are struggling, the widows are struggling, the orphans, but we give our money to the temple and it's the temple's responsibility to take care of all of this. And they had a small point in that it was the temple's responsibility. But the temple wasn't supposed to be feeding and caring for old age people that still had a family. And that's where the Pharisees were saying, we have given our money to God and now God must take care of them through the temple. That is hypocrisy. That is awful. In fact, he says, you nullify the word of God by your traditions. Because God's law to put the money into the temple wasn't so you don't have to take care of people. It was so that we could take care of more people. The temple can take care of people. We can take care of the family. We can take care of the people we meet, the widows and orphans that we know. We can feed the homeless. We can shelter those that we know. But we don't know everybody. And so we place our funds over there. Uh, as I've put it before, I'm, I'm only 5'9". Uh, there are many places I cannot reach. And there are so many times that I wish that I could reach up and in a store years ago, a lady that was shorter than I asked if I could reach something, and I could. And she said, I'm so sorry to have bothered you. And I said, no, you've actually made one of my dreams come true. I was tall enough to reach, so thank you. When we give to the church, we are reaching farther than we ever could on our own. Whenever you give, there, there are funds that have gone out everywhere uh, because we are not a, we're not a parking lot for the funds. We're not here to enrich us. We, are, we're, we try to be the hands and feet of Christ. 
And I hope that you see that. And so many of you are actually doing that where you are. Whether you're a single individual, whether you're a couple or a family, or whether you've now got a house church built around some aspect of either our, our worship, our teaching, or the like. We hear from you. And that's, that's brilliant. But that doesn't absolve us from the need to do more. And I'm not pushing for more money here. Please understand. I give here. I also pay taxes. Yet, if I see a poor individual, or I see a person who needs a coat, or need you know, whatever it is, I cannot say, well, I've already done my duty. I've given there. I give to the government. I'm really done. No. We are to continually share, be kind, be generous, be good. Here's what was going on. Jesus breaks rules. He's about to break a couple here. But he's not going to break them because he doesn't like the rules. He's breaking them because he's saying, you're enforcing the wrong rule. You've elevated the outer, the washing of hands, while ignoring your duty to take care of your family and to take care of the poor. You are sloughing that off by giving excess to the temple and saying you've done what you should do. And then he goes further. Here's where some people would have left Jesus and would not have followed him anymore. After he'd left, the crowd uh, rather gathers, I'm sorry, let's go back. Verse 14, he gathers the crowd around him. It was the Pharisees before, and now they've wandered off. He calls the crowd and says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, <clears throat> Jesus was being human here, and a little crudity here is acceptable because we're human beings. There are physical functions that human beings have. In the Victorian age, it was considered proper and fine to jail a man and drive his family into the workhouses as slaves because he owed a debt. It was considered um, perfectly morally fine to hang a 14-year-old for stealing bread, but it was considered immoral to ever speak of anything to do with uh, the alimentary canal and its productions. How's that for those with small children in the room? It was considered improper to talk about sexual activity or about anything to do with what happens in a bathroom. That was Victorian England, and it was horrible. In reality, we talk about these things. And he's saying, why do we wash? We wash to get the stuff that came out of us off of our hands. He says, but what really defiles you is not what's going into you. It's what's coming out of you. What are the, what's the fruit of your labor? What you're doing, what can we see from that? What's the fruit of this? And... As he leaves the crowd, his disciples come around and go, we don't really get this because that's like half of the, the Torah. That's Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He goes, are you so dull? Can't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In little parentheses there, there's a line, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. You need to know that in many manuscripts that doesn't show up. And it could have been a monk or a, a 
somebody in the scriptorium that wrote that off to the side as a note and got in there. We really don't know until Cornelius and Peter and that period that God has declared all foods clean. And that, that's in the middle of the book of Acts. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these come from inside, and they defile a person. Well, people are shocked they're spinning around. They don't understand that when Jesus said he came to make all things new, and he also says that in the book of Revelation at the end of times, he means it. All things are new now. We need a great reset, a re, uh, an adjustment. And so, we come to a story that has caused a lot of angst. Because Jesus appears to be very rude. And at one level... You might call him racist. I'm not sure if we define these different groups as race or not, merely because that's not the way I think about things, so I haven't studied that, all right? But it, they were very much in conflict. And the Jews considered themselves very much above the Syrophoenicians. Jesus left that place and went into the, the vicinity of Tyre. Don't worry, we're coming back to the first thing. This story illustrates something about what Jesus has just said. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. That's because there were no secrets back then. Everybody lived life right on top of everybody else. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen people coming up to Jesus asking for this very thing. And what does Jesus do? Jesus drives a demon out, whether it's the ruler of the synagogue or whether it's a, a, a Roman soldier, uh, an officer who has been kind to the Jews. He goes and he takes care of people. Doesn't he? It's very shocking. He absolutely insults her. He says... Now, let the, let the children, which was an expression meaning the Jews, the children of God, eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Now, if you're not uncomfortable here, I'm not sure you're being honest with the text. And I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I think what you're doing is you're injecting a knee-jerk piety. Saying, all right, we can't be offended. Jesus has to mean something really deep and theological. And perhaps. But if it's you. If you're the woman with no standing in that community. And that religion. And you come and you ask for help. And he refers to you and your people as dogs. What are you going to think? Are you going to think, oh, I bet he's got some big theological point. <laughs> no, you're not. Live in the story. Don't run for the solution. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, there has to be something left. Even if we're just dogs, they get to eat something. And Jesus said, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. 
in Matthew, it says, because of your faith, the demon has left your daughter. Well, what? If he was going to do that, why did he have to call her a dog first? Because he was showing the world what it would be like if we enforced the law, like the Pharisees did, without the compassion. If we enforced the rules without letting love trump law. This woman has to be called a dog and her daughter has to suffer the rest of her life. But if we understand that God gave us these rules and laws for our benefit to help us not to get in the way, not to keep us from loving a Syrophoenician woman and caring about her daughter and even giving of the storehouse of God to the stranger, the outsider. What kind of world would this be? Well, I would submit to you that you can see that anywhere. You can go find people that'll say, you know, we, we are, we're understanding that you're, you're, your back's all torn up, you're sick, you've got these six diseases, but you don't tick one of the boxes so you don't get disability or your insurance doesn't count or we're not going to pay for the drug or what, we've seen this. How many people are caught in that bizarre middle ground where they don't make enough to receive help? Or they don't make enough to, to survive, but they make too much to receive help. And they're stuck there because of the rules. In churches, we do this too. Well, we have a rule about the way you're supposed to be living your life. We have a rule about how you take the Lord's Supper. We have a rule about this, and you have to do these rules. And once you do all the rules, then the kindness and love of the church will envelop you. That, my friends, is heresy, it is blasphemy, and it is what Jesus was angry about in the first part of Mark 7. And then he shows what the world and the church would be like if we lived according to law without love and without the ability of love to wash over law and change everything. Had the Pharisees given their tithe, I would guarantee you they did because that's, that's just the way they did. They were very precise. So they had given generously. Jesus is saying, you are not done. That's the thing. Love means that we don't have borders anymore. Love means that we don't have to say, well, we only take, keep, you know, take care of people in our area or people like us. My father was a hard man and he made many errors, but that he was not a cartoon either. He did some things right. And I remember there was a church that wanted to know about whether they wanted to work with him on something, some project for the, uh, the poor. But this church believed it was wrong to take money from the, God's money from the treasury and spend it on people who weren't part of God's children. And in fact, my father looked at them and said, this building looks look like it needs a little help. Would, you, would it be all right for you to spend money to paint the building? And they said, well, yes. He said, so it's all right to put paint or coat on your building, but not a coat on an orphan. And they went silent. They stuck to their guns and kept their money, and we walked out. That is far more common than you might think. But normally we dress it up a lot prettier than that. 
we'll dress it up as, well, I've got, you know, we have other obligations, we have priorities. Jesus says, get your priorities right. And that means invite the others to the table. Share with them. You don't share until you've shared your portion. You share until you can share no more because that is who we are. We have a God that'll break the rules that we put up as most important. And he will do something wonderful with it. He will bring us love. In about a minute, I'm going to ask for the praise team to come back up and close out our service. But understand this. We have a God who makes rules. But we also have a God that overrides the rules because of love. All the women in the genealogy of Jesus that are named in Matthew chapter 1 were women outside the law, outside the covenant, outside the community, either by birth or by circumstance. And God brought them all in. He did not do as Ezra would have demanded, driving them out. He brought them in. Yes, there are laws, but figure out what's the most important one. And as Galatians 5 and verse 6 tells us, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Look it up. One more time and we'll be done. The only thing that matters is faith is expressing itself in love. Go do that.